Good morning. Glad you guys are here. Glad you guys are gathered live stream. We've been studying the church and we've been studying the indicators, the markers of a healthy New Testament church. And we're, we've come to the place where we paused on evangelism as, a, as one of the indicators of a healthy New Testament church. And we put the microscope down on top of that indicator and we've been studying evangelism. And so today we're going to take a look at Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And that passage is going to help us to ask our key question this morning. And that key question is, really, it's two questions in one question. I probably should have divided it into two questions, but I'm verbose and I like long run-on sentences. And so um, I have one sentence with two questions buried in it. Here's the key question. What is a disciple and how do we make disciples? Because we study evangelism, the end has to be disciple-making. And because Jesus speaks the way he speaks in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, it is absolutely vital for us to ask this key question. What is a disciple and how do we make disciples? So if you got a Bible, you can look in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20. And if you don't, I'm going to read it. No worries. Jesus says... In this passage, he's been raised from the dead. He's alive. He's gathered with his disciples. He tells them all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because Jesus speaks like this, because he says what he says, we are obligated to ask the question, what is a disciple and how do we make disciples? Because in this passage, the one command of the passage is make disciples. The main verb is make disciples. All of the other components are participial in the Two sentences are in the sentence Jesus speaks to us here. The main verb is make disciples. And so it's important for us to understand this absolute key point this morning. And that's this. Disciple making is the absolute tactical lifeblood of the local church. Not ministries, not things we offer to other people as some manner of service. But disciple making is the tactical lifeblood of the local church. Just a little side note that's very important here because I'm using two words. I'm saying evangelism and I'm saying disciple making. Disciple making is the preferred language to speak about the entire process of obeying the Great Commission from having a friendship or building a relationship with somebody to the preaching proclamation or telling of the good news which is evangelism. Evangelism is the telling of the good news. And so disciple making is the whole process. Getting to know somebody, having a friend, telling the good news. Their hearing, our understanding of their hearing, our walking with them through questions, their belief in the gospel and their discipleship in Christ. All of that is the disciple making process. Evangelism is the discipline of telling the story of Jesus and his work. So when we're talking about the Great Commission this morning. Let's refer to the whole process as disciple-making. We're going to talk next week very nuts and bolts about the evangelism component. And we've been talking a lot for the past few weeks about the work of evangelism. But this morning, I want us to see the broader picture of disciple-making. Because Jesus speaks like this, 
you won't be surprised to discover that the word disciple is found in the Bible 267 times and exclusively found in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the book of Acts. The lone exception to that is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 16, where the Hebrew equivalent word can be translated as learned or taught. Being a disciple was not unique to Jesus' day. Not unique at all. Jesus didn't create the idea of discipleship. The Pharisees had disciples. A disciple is, is someone uh, who has a relationship with a master teacher. So this has been going on for centuries. Jesus comes and he takes this because I'm totally convinced because all things created somehow reflect to the creator and because God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God created human relationships to function like this. And so in the work of redemption, this discipleship relationship is something that images forth the Lord. So the Pharisees had disciples. We read in Mark 2.8 and Luke 5.33 that the Pharisees had disciples. Matthew 9.14 reminds us that John the Baptist had disciples. Even Satan himself had disciples. In John 8, 44, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, say that they are sons of their father, Satan. And even though he's speaking in terms of a father-son relationship, that's a discipleship relationship. You'll begin to see this as you read the New Testament, where this relationship of a spiritual father, a spiritual mother to a spiritual son or spiritual daughter is referred to as father-son. 1 Timothy 1.2 says, Paul to Timothy, you are my spiritual son. 2 Timothy 1.2 says the same thing, you're my son in the faith. And so there is a sense in which even Satan has disciples as his spiritual sons. They are just on the dark team. They're on another side. So discipleship isn't specifically unique. It is an existing relationship of someone to somebody else or something. Now, the reason I tell you that is for this statement, and, and I want you to get this. This is absolutely huge. The question is never, are people, are you and I, disciples? That's never the question. Everyone is a disciple. The question is, who or what are people disciples of? That's the key question. Everybody on the face of this planet is a disciple. They learn from someone or something. The question is, who or what are we disciples of? I have as an illustration a podcast link in the notes. You can go to the notes, mitchjolly.com, and you can see today's notes. There's a podcast episode I linked to because I want you to go listen to it. I know John has listened to it. I sent it to him for him to listen to. Uh, and I sent it to a few other people. It's very long. And if you can hang with it, I want you to hang with it because sometimes when I tell stories like this, I think people really think that I'm making this stuff up. And just so you know, I'm not making it up. I want you to listen to this podcast because you're going to read in there or read. You're not going to read. You're going to listen in the podcast about somebody I know. They're a Pepperell graduate. They're a shorter college graduate, a professional in our town, local church member, Southern Baptist. And you're going to read not again, read, you're going to hear in the podcast about how they approach spirituality, healing, and you're going to find in that story the equivalent of the Christ and the Buddha on these strange trips using different substances to get there while being a member of a Southern Baptist church. 
This person is a disciple. And the crazy thing about our city, which is why we've spent so much time talking about cultural Christianity, is that that's the example of someone who puts the name Jesus on top of what is actually discipling them. And if you don't get past the initial question of, are you a Christian, you will never discover that they're actually not a disciple of Jesus. Which is why I say things like putting a Christian t-shirt on top of our idols. This is a prime example of what that looks like in our city. And if you never dive past the surface, you will never discover that this person is not just a disciple of somebody. They're a disciple of many somebodies and something. And they just happen to call those somebodies and some things Jesus in some instances. So the question is never, are we disciples? The question is, who or what disciples us? Jesus is an exclusive relationship. Christian discipleship is never Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus anything ruins absolutely everything. It destroys everything. Jesus is an exclusive relationship. So what is a disciple? Here's a definition for you from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. A disciple is someone who follows another person or another way of life and who submits himself or herself to the discipline or the teaching of that leader or that way. A simple way to say that is a disciple is a student of a master teacher. But what does this look like? What does this discipleship relationship look like? In the case of Jesus' command to make disciples and the example he gave us and how he lived. And by the way, just so that you understand, it's not like we have to make up a way to disciple people. Jesus did this in his living. He gave us this example. And so that we understand discipleship in a distinctly Christ-centered Christian way, we understand that Jesus lived this out for us. So in the case of Jesus' command to make disciples, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus, the living God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the creator God, the means by which, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, that Yahweh, the Father, created everything through the means of Jesus. Jesus, the living God, is the teacher who invites people, you and I, people in our city, people around the world, to be his students, to be his friends, to be his worshipers in a living relationship with God the Father through his atoning work on the cross in the place of sinners so that we can be his disciples and the master teacher student relationship. Jesus will say it like this in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 to 30, using an agricultural illustration using an illustration that the people of his day would understand clearly. Jesus takes the picture of a cart with a fully grown adult ox having a yoke on it and a young ox who has to learn to pull a cart being yoked up with that ox. And the young ox just walks beside the old full grown ox to learn how to pull a cart. Jesus picks this illustration and he says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 to 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus pictures this relationship with us as being getting 
into this relationship where we yoke up with him, where we get in this cart with him and he pulls it and we get the privilege of walking along beside him. And by the way, the old ox pulls the cart, the young ox just walks along. Jesus invites us not to be the power that makes things go, but to walk in a relationship with him while we watch him do it and we experience his power and his grace and his might and we glory in what he does because we're just walking with him. That's a picture of the disciple-student relationship Jesus gives us. Jesus also teaches us here in the Gospels that the disciples of Jesus learn for the rest of their lives. It's, it's not like we get connected to Jesus for just a little bit and then we go off on our own. For the rest of our lives, we learn from Jesus in this relationship of walking with Him how to be citizens of His kingdom as we hear His word, as we learn to obey His word, as we learn to worship Him correctly and rightly, and we join Him on His mission to disciple the nations. Jesus, again, will say it like this in Mark 1.17. Follow me. Just an invitation. Come, come follow me. He says to them, come, come leave that and come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Disciples of Jesus fish for women. They fish for men. And they teach those who are caught through the powerful gospel to follow Jesus the way they follow Jesus so that they both can follow Jesus together in covenant fellowship in a local church. Look at how Jesus executed this task in Mark 9 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Jesus had a relationship with 12 disciples, and inside that 12, he had three he invested more time in. And he took them exclusively up onto this place where he showed them his pre-incarnate glory where he showed them his majesty as the God man and he took those three and he invested more time in them and he also invested some time in the twelve Jesus executed this disciple teacher relationship in a branch and extension of deep relationships that experienced itself out in relationships with other people also he also gave us an example in Luke 10, 1 to 12, where Jesus appointed 72 others. So Jesus with the three, Jesus got the 12, and outside the 12, there's a whole branch of other disciples that are following Jesus through these other relationships as they're inviting people in. And Jesus says to these 72, he sends them out two by two to go to every town and place where he himself is about to go. And he gives them this long list of instructions that's absolutely important, but he sends them out in pairs. Why does he do that? Because there's an understanding in making disciples that we are to not be isolated, but together on Jesus' mission, yoked up with him leading the way. He sends them to go to the places he himself is about to go, meaning he got there before they got there, sent them to go together. They walk with him in the mission in master-teacher, student relationship. Absolutely beautiful. So how do we make disciples like this? Like, how do we do that? Good question. We're going to spend some time in the little nuts and bolts how-to today. Next Sunday, we're going to get really into the nuts and bolts of how to do that. I want to invite you to have your phone ready next week. I'm going to invite you to download an app that's going to walk you through actually doing this. It's good. I use it. I like it. And I want to encourage you to use it too. And we're going to look explicitly at a couple of passages that are going to help us really get down into the dirt of what it is to make disciples. And inside that, 
to evangelize well as we share the good news. But how do we make disciples like this at a little bit higher level today? Well, I've got a few points I want to share with you to help us do this well. Number one, we have to absolutely believe. I want you to hear this. This is essential. We have to absolutely believe that the action of disciple-making is a command. It's not a suggestion. If we don't believe that Jesus commanded us to do this, we will flounder around with all manner of things that are unproductive. Disciple-making is not optional. Now, if we believe Jesus isn't God, then that's a different team. That's not Team Christian. That's not Team Jesus. That's in the dark kingdom. But if we, if we believe that Jesus isn't God then maybe we have some kind of option to go, well, I'll choose to not obey that if I want to. But if we've come to faith in Christ, the good news of the kingdom has come to us and awakened us and saved us, we do not get the option of disobeying Jesus without some manner of consequence. Does that make sense? So if we really believe that disciple-making is a command, that the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, if we believe that's a command, that is to obey to be obeyed, we begin to understand it's a command to be obeyed that has effect on real people who get to know God and get to witness the kingdom of God coming in power, being redeemed, transformed, saved, brought into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And if we really believe it's a command to be obeyed, then we must begin to get after that and recognize that it's vital. I think it's important to recognize something about our context we're knowledge heavy and obedience light. We find that there's some manner of spiritual high we get from knowing more things. Nothing wrong with that. That's never an excuse to stop knowing things. We need to continue to learn and grow in our knowing of Christ. But the knowing is to never replace obeying. If we know that it's a command to obey, then guess what we probably ought to do? We probably ought to obey it. So we have to start by believing it's a command to be obeyed that has real effect on real people who get to know God in that process and walk in the power of the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God advances and manifests itself. Here's a conversation I want to relay to you from a friend, a pastor buddy named Joel Rainey in Virginia where someone asked him some questions about disciple making and evangelism and here's the first question that was asked this person said where in scripture do we find examples of people finding a relationship with God through general revelation that's by just looking at nature and sensing right and wrong but not actually hearing about Jesus and Joel's response is we don't so they asked again so, so how do we know it's possible for people to go to heaven if they've never heard about Jesus and Joel's response is we can't so they ask again, so what assurance do people have of eternal life that have never heard of Jesus? Joel's response, none. And so they ask again, so for anyone to get to heaven, someone has to actually go to that person and share the message of Jesus? Joel's response, yep. And this person's final statement, I guess I never realized that evangelism was that important. Right? It's that important. 
God is sovereign and he's powerful and he will see to all of his ends powerfully and supernaturally. But in his providence, he has ordained that the gospel go forward through obedient servants of Christ, opening our mouths and speaking the good news of Jesus Christ to people who need to hear. Meaning if we really believe this is a command, we recognize that God providentially, sovereignly works in us opening our mouth and preaching the good news. So that's number one. How we make disciples like this, we've got to believe it's a command to be obeyed. Number two, we need to be able to tell, preach, or proclaim the good news of Jesus' kingdom. It actually requires us to speak the words of this good news to people. What's the content of that good news? 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6 gives us some good insight on what we need to get to. Now next week we're going to take this passage and spend a little more time with it because it's a sermon all by itself. But what Paul helps us see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6 is what we need to get to in our evangelism. That is the proclamation of this message that's powerful. And here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received couple observations. One, Paul delivered to them as first importance. In other words, what he's about to say to them is a primary import. But notice that it was something he's not making up. It's what he received. Very important to recognize the gospel is an eternal gospel. It's not made up by man. It's not generated by us. It's the eternal message of God and his saving activity. The book of Revelation, John sees an angel flying in the air, and this angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim. Why? Because this is God's message. It's eternal in nature. We don't make it up. We don't give it. It's God's message. We are the vehicles by which it is spoken. So Paul's clear. The most important thing I had to say to you is something I received from the Lord. Well, what in the world is that message? Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Jesus died for our sins. And how did he do it? In accordance with what God has already spoken. So again, this comes from God. This is in the scriptures. The Bible teaches this message. And it is that Christ died. Number four, or verse four. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What did Paul find was of most important to get to these Corinthians? The message of who Jesus is, his death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, your gospel proclamation, your evangelism, that is speaking the good news, you have to get to Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Central. So first importance. Listen, that message is so powerful. It is so powerful that it causes dead people to come alive. That message is so powerful that it, when it lands with the effect of the Holy Spirit on one of God's elect, it causes blind eyes to see. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't need me to be on or you to be on or on your game. Doesn't need you to not stutter or speak clearly. You can get Jesus' person, death, burial, and resurrection out. God will yank people into life. And Paul said, this is of first importance that this message get to people. So we have to recognize that we got to tell the good news of Jesus and His kingdom. I think there are some things that keep us from that. I think some of it is shame. I think we're really ashamed of Jesus sometimes, that we just won't get to Him. We want to talk about God. And listen, there's nothing wrong with God talk as long as you're not dealing with people like I was explaining earlier 
who confused God with the Buddha and with the Christ and with Vishnu, right? Like we can keep God talk general because we live in a spiritual world and people recognize God. Sometimes he's little G God, sometimes he's big G God, but the question is, what God? Because there's only one. And he's revealed himself as Jesus, who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And we recognize as soon as we start talking that stuff that we get ourselves in a narrow, exclusive club. And some people don't like that message. I recognize that, I know. But we cannot be ashamed of that message. We have to get to Jesus, his person, his death, burial, and resurrection. I love in the book of Acts, you'll find that's where Paul always has to get. That's where the apostles have to get. And Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens, he's talking some spiritual language. He's quoting their own poets and they're digging what he has to say. And then he gets to the resurrection and they start jeering at him. Boo! Oh man, that's crazy. But it said some believed. Always when we get to the death, burial, and resurrection, it has that effect because it's a powerful message. It's the true message. And the true message sometimes confronts or it opposes false messages, but it also brings to life dead people. And so some people believed in Acts 17, but some's like, man, you're crazy. You're talking about dead people coming alive. So be it. But that is the message we have to get to. We have to tell the good news. We have to evangelize in this disciple-making process. If we never get to Jesus, we're never going to make disciples. Third, we need to invite a new Christian to imitate us as we imitate Jesus inside covenant fellowship with a local church. We have to invite a new Christian to imitate us as we imitate Jesus inside a covenant fellowship with local church. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, you're gonna see a graphic up on the screen that's gonna help you here. Help us execute this task of disciple making. Paul says to this church at Corinth who has some serious challenges. The church at Corinth, they worship their spiritual heroes. They got their Matt Chandlers. They got their Mark Driscolls. They got their pick your favorite, they got their Tim Kellers, some, some follow Cephas, some follow Paul, some follow this cat, some follow the super apostles, and they've forgotten Jesus. So they, they worship their spiritual heroes, they have sexual misconduct that's rampant in the church, all kinds of problems, they're abusing the Lord's Supper, which has led some of them to die and be sick, lest we abuse the Lord's Supper, take heed, Right? So they got problems. And Paul says to this church who's struggling, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So just boil it down to the very base level. He goes back to how Jesus led the disciples and the three inside the 12 and said, like Jesus, live for them. I'm following Jesus. Put your eyes on me. Do what I do as I'm following Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. You have to be able to do that. Not only have to be able to, you must do that. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 is not a call to perfection. There's nobody perfect in this room, nobody perfect watching live stream, nobody perfect in the first service. No perfect people. There's only one perfect person. That's Jesus, the eternal Son of God. But what we can do is imitate Him. We can speak His words. We can obey His word. 
And what we can do is invite people to imitate us as we imitate Jesus. And we teach them in this relationship how to follow Jesus. We introduce them to the one we're yoked up to together. And they begin to walk with Jesus like we are walking with Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. What a powerful and awesome task we have to introduce people to the eternal Son of God and get them to imitate us while we're imitating Jesus. And we say, Jesus, look. And it's not like Jesus didn't already know. Jesus, let me meet this person. He's like, I already knew them. And they're like, I know Jesus now. And I've learned Jesus by walking with you. There's a simple process to doing this in the discipleship relationship. We call it in our church, the radical life, up in and out. And when you're walking with people, it starts with the end. It starts with relationships, one-to-one, one-to-three. And it looks like this. We share and care. We tell our stories, what God's doing in our life. We minister to one another. We serve one another. And then we worship together. How do we do that? Well, we pray together. And you can pray by using your hand. We start with praise. We praise God. We thank Him. We confess our sins. We pray for other people. We pray for ourselves. That's worship, and you can do that in public. We've done that in our discipleship relationships in local coffee shops where we pray together. And it's good for people to see you praying in Jesus' name together in public. And so you share and care. You pray together. And then you celebrate. You look back on the things that we said we wanted the Lord to do and we're asking Him for. And we celebrate the work of God in our lives. And we give thanks to Him for that. That's accountability. Then we go to the Word of God. We look up. We ask three questions about our Bible reading. What does it say? What is it teaching us, and how do we obey it? And we discuss that together. And then we move to the third part. We practice this process, because in practicing it, what we're doing is teaching somebody else how to do it with somebody else, so that when they're doing it with somebody else, they're imitating us as we imitated Jesus, you see? And as they imitate us imitating Jesus, they start following Jesus on their own, and then they take their three and teach them how to follow Jesus with them. And the next thing you know, you have what we call in missions a movement. This is Missiology 101. This is Disciple Making 101. And if we use this process, we begin to move into the area of unstoppability because we have a network of people who are following Jesus. And by the way, this is reproducible. You don't need a building for this. Don't need a worship service. Don't need a sound system. You just need to make disciples. Fourth, and this is where a lot of us may be right now. Invite an established Christian who needs to learn to follow Jesus into a relationship in which you teach him how to live a radical life. Awful lot of spiritual orphans who are just hanging out. And can I just say this to you? Spiritual orphanhood is inappropriate in the kingdom of God because number one, God's Trinity. He exists in community. We're made in Trinitarian image, made to be with other people, particularly made to be with other people in relationship with Jesus. And so there are a lot of spiritual orphans who need someone to come alongside them and teach them how to follow Jesus. So maybe your task is to find an established Christian who needs to learn to follow Jesus in a relationship in which you teach them how to live this in, up, and out relationship. Don't assume repentance and faith. Start with the gospel. Make sure they've repented and believed the good news. Teach them how to live life like this. Start within, work to up, move to out. Teach your people how to imitate your example of discipling other people. Jesus had three inside the 12, and he invested heavily in them. Make it your goal to find three. Invest in them. Teach them how to do this. And demand that they teach others how to do this. And a little side note that I didn't give the guys on, on, in the first service. 
When you're investing in other people, you don't do it on their schedule, they do it on yours. Jesus said to Peter, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter had to leave his boat and come follow Jesus. Find three and invite them to come get on your six and come after you. That's how you'll be able to scale through who's really serious about following Jesus. It's a little tactical, practical help. Make it your goal to have four generations of spiritual sons and daughters. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2 teaches us how to do this. Paul says to Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's four spiritual generations of multiplying. Me, to you, to others, to others who are able to teach others also. What happens when you get four generations? Father, son, grandson, great-grandson in the faith. What happens? What you have is a network of relationships that have multiplied, and it's referred to as a movement because you then lose control of it. Spiritual father is not down here working with the great-grandsons. No, 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 no. Spiritual father is just making more spiritual sons. And each spiritual son's making spiritual sons. And each grandson's making spiritual sons. And, and mothers making daughters. And daughters making granddaughters all the way down the line. And the next thing you know, you have a network of generations of people who are learning to follow Jesus from simple obedience to make disciples by taking my little tiny mustard seed, sitting it down in the ground of the gospel, and watching God multiply. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. I think it's important to note here that this started, we see an example of this in John 4 with somebody who wasn't discipled into a 101, 102, 103, 104 linear progression of knowledge. We have this idea that I, I need to get my, my faith, I need to get more information in me. I need to have some classes so my doctrine gets to an like expert level before you let me loose. No, no, that's not how it works. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus meet this woman at the well. And she's got a multitude of husbands and she's trying to cover it. She's got some serious issues and sin in her life and Jesus starts engaging her on who to worship and, and who God is. And she's like, when I, I, we hear when Jesus is coming, we're going to worship like this. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am, am he. And she's like, whoa! She meets, she meets Jesus. She gets transformed. And guess what she does? She signs up for a doctrine class, right? No! She goes back into her village and starts telling her, you got to meet Jesus! He told me everything I ever did. And next thing you know, the disciples are looking out and here comes this village out to meet Jesus. This woman met Christ and was turned into a disciple maker instantly. Meaning all of us are called to be like that. Your doctrine grows as you obey, not as you take a progression of classes. Does that make sense? And so understand this can be done right now. Like you can start this now. Because you have the master teacher of the universe dwelling in you and you have his word. Isn't that cool? So I release you. Go get after it. Can you imagine what that would look like in our city? That's astounding. That doesn't even require money. You don't need a budget for that. And then finally, we worship. Because our joy in Christ is not reaching its apex until it is manifested outwardly in corporate worship. And we bring people together inside the corporate fellowship to make much of Jesus. Because our delight in Christ comes to its apex when together we make much of Him together. On mission, making disciples.
That's how we do it. That's how we're going to do it. It's how we're going to reach our city. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship and you're going to be released to go do this this week. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would be glorified, be exalted, be lifted high in us this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, for you to do in us this morning a work of delight in obedience. We pray that you would work in us in such a manner that we would delight to obey what you've given us to do. It's a very basic command to make disciples. So Lord, I pray that you would, in an apostolic fashion, move, motivate, equip and send every person who hears this this morning to go and live in a disciple-making relationship with others and equip them to be in disciple-making relationships with others. Would you do that in this fellowship? And thus accomplish what you've given us to even ask you to do. To multiply our people like the flocks at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So that the waste cities would be filled with flocks of people and they would know that you are the Lord. Would you do that through us and in us? Move out from this room and this place and this city today to achieve that for your glory and our joy. And we pray in Jesus' name.